couple commercial breaks before we get started. Uh, first, it's in the bulletin, but I'll just remind you that Good Friday, we're going to go to Hartville and meet together with Ron and Cornerstone uh, Community Church. So, Good Friday, and the time will be in there. I think we said 6.30, but take a look at the bulletin for that. <clears throat> Is that what it says? Okay. So, okay, 7. Uh, and a quick update on, uh, where's Jane? Where are you? Jane's back here. Jane is going to take a break from the office for a bit. Uh, if, in case you don't realize, she's working full-time helping Jason, who's down flat on his back, literally. Jason has been uh, out of commission for several months, and he's waiting on test results, and we're not sure where it's going, but uh, we miss Jason, and Jane has uh, been filling in there full-time, and there, there's more than she can get done, so she's going to take a break. If you have anything that you want in the bulletin or any need information, see Nate or I, and, and we can help you with that. Then a third thing is that I've mentioned this, and it's in the bulletin, but there's some very simple little business cards over there. Very non-threatening. There are no names on them. Um, it says, ordinary people gathering to worship the extraordinary God. Join us Sundays at 10 a.m. On the other side, Wellspring Bible Church, our location and phone number. Uh, I would love to see us go through a couple thousand of these between now and Easter. So when you pull into McDonald's, when you go to Penny's, when you're talking to a neighbor, hand them one. Wouldn't it be great if everybody got five of them? Maybe they'd know we're here. I hear all the time, there's a church in the mall. Well, here's a way to let them know. So this is a real non-threatening way to invite somebody. It's uh, kind of nondescript, but take some that are on the table. Start with a half a dozen and get rid of those and then come back and get a dozen and then get a dozen more and, and uh, we'll go from there. But try to remember to do that. That's a good way to get our, our name out. You know, I, th I thought this morning that it would be good for us to get some perspective. We've been talking about Canaan land, and we've been talking about God's people going into Canaan. The, the country that has probably had a greater impact on human history than any other is Israel. And so sometimes we lose perspective on how big Israel is. Throw that map up there, Mark, if you can. I thought it would be good for you to see. There it is. That's the state of Ohio, and the dark outline in the middle is Israel. Now, just ponder that for just a second. Isn't that a little tiny area? That's a fraction of the size of the state of Ohio, and only in the last few years has Israel gone over 8 million people. I think the state of Ohio is approaching 11, but when I was young, Israel was about 4 million and now it keeps growing. There's people going back, but it's, I think it's around eight, eight and a half million. And so it's much smaller in both in population and also in, look at the geography of it. This is the country we're talking about. Isn't that amazing? That the impact that that country has had on this world for all these generations. Well, that's Israel. So uh, I just thought maybe it would help us to get that in mind. We're reading about the children of Israel going into the Canaan land is to see that little tiny country. You know, last week we, uh, it's kind of a downer, but we got defeated at AI. It was awful. 
they went in and attacked. They were presuming on God, and they were sent in the camp, and they got rotted. They lost soldiers, and so they were chased out of town. And this week, I've got good news. We're going to win. You like to win? I promised I was not going to talk about basketball, so I'm not going to talk anything about winning at basketball. Where's Marty? Yeah. Uh, Marty said last week's sermon was about basketball. So that's all I'm going to say. Has anybody been watching the tournaments? Yeah, yeah okay. All right. I'm sorry, I had to. I had to feed that in. Um, you know, when I, when I read through this section, the first question that jumps out at me is what made the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8? What made the difference between them getting chased out of town in uh, chapter 7 and then them going in and winning easily in chapter 8? Well, let's look at that. Uh, you wonder, was it a different military tactic? Did you notice they used a different tactic? What was the military tactic they used at Jericho? None. They marched around the city in obedience. They marched around the city, marched around the city. Seventh day, marched around the city. Seven times the walls fell down. Why in the world now in AI do they contrive this plan of an ambush? Entirely different military tactics and a whole different baseline from Jericho to AI. And why the difference? You know, I, I've chewed on that for a couple of weeks, and here's my best answer. Jericho was an insurmountable obstacle. When they came into the Canaan land, that little tiny country there, they came into Canaan, looming large right in front of them is Jericho. And there was nothing they could do. Jericho was a totally self-sufficient city. It had walls that you couldn't permeate. They had water. They had food. They had everything they needed. And Israel had no hope of taking Jericho except for one. And that hope was God. And so God did what Israel couldn't do. Uh, God brought down the walls of Jericho. Okay. Now they're coming up against a city that has a population, a total population of like 12,000. And Israel, as we read through there, they had many more times than that, three times that in just in soldiers. So this little town of Ai, and we, we know pretty well where it is, this little town was uh, easy mark if God's people obeyed. Now the first time around, there was sin in the camp. The first time around, they presumed on God, and the first time around, they never consulted him. And they got defeated. But this time, they rid themselves of the sin that was in the camp. They took care of that. We're going to read that in just a minute. And the, the tactic was, this time, use the resources that you have. And as I've chewed on that, just think about that for a minute. In our lives, are there ever obstacles that are too large for us that we simply can't clear? There's nothing we can do about them. And we have one hope, and that's that the Lord intervenes. Do you ever feel that sometimes? We have one hope, and that's that God intervenes in our life, and we tell him that. And then there are those times where I think we look up at God, and God looks back down at us and says, just get yourself in gear. I've given you all the resources you need. Just go do it. 
right? Sometimes he expects us to use our natural resources, use what he's given us. And I think at AI, they didn't need anything. Uh, they had all the resources they needed. They just needed the blessing and the presence of God. And they needed to know they were in his favor because everything was in place. They had a far superior military force. And, and think about that for a minute. Um, does God always have to use the same method in our life when he wants to accomplish something? Does he? No, he doesn't. We, we tend to put God in a box, you know. God do it this way. And we begin to dictate to him, how are you going to do this? But we can't put God in a box. And God can do things in all different kinds of ways. Sometimes he can use people, and sometimes he can use supernatural means. He still can. So I think the difference, the lesson in both of those is that when the obstacle is insurmountable, God can show up and bring the walls down. And when it's within the, our own resources to do the job, sometimes he says, go do the job. Just do what's in front of you. There's another thing, just by way of introduction here, that, that got my attention. Um, many people have read this section, and if you've never been troubled by it, you may never have read it close enough, because there's a lot of bloodshed in the book of Joshua. There's a lot of bloodshed in the Old Testament. It's caused some people to read the Old Testament and say, he's a bloody God. Richard Dawkins, I copied one little quote from Richard Dawkins. He had read through the book of Joshua specifically, I understand. And here's what he said. Listen to this. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Now, he called it fiction. That's where we differ. He is jealous and proud, petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, vindictive and bloodthirsty, and he is an ethnic cleanser. That's what Dawkins got out of the book of Joshua. Uh, well, if you read from just a human perspective, the book of Joshua, it's a bloody book. And what we're going to read today, the end of this, it's a bloody scene. And, and if it doesn't trouble you at all, then you, you probably haven't processed it, because it should trouble us. It should bother us. But I, I think that, incidentally, he equated uh, God to Hitler, just to give you a feel for how he thought. Uh, there are some things that they overlook and that we overlook sometimes. Let me just give you a couple things that can be overlooked. And the first is most important, and that is that, that God is not accountable to you. And he's not accountable to me. He's not accountable to anybody on this earth. We are accountable to him. And so sometimes we want to put, not only put God in a box, we want to put him in a cage. We want to tell him what he can do and what he can't do. And God's not accountable to us. And not only is he not accountable, God isn't measured by our standards. He's measured by his standards. And God's standards are perfect. They're righteous. They're just. Always. All the time. In all ages. But... We can't measure him by ours. And I think we overlook sometimes, and uh, Derek, I think you brought this out the first week, or maybe Jason did, when we were earlier in this series, 
about what Canaan was like. It was Jason, wasn't it, that talked about this. You know, this, this land of Canaan was an awful place. It was awful. And the things that went on there are, are so despicable. For instance, how many children do we have? Child sacrifice. Um, not only did they sacrifice them, they did it in such despicable ways. Here's what they did. They heated up their bronze god Malik, or Molik, and they placed the children on this fiery hot bronze altar. And then the mothers were supposed to dance around and sing while this child is being tortured. That's Canaan. That's what was going on there. Their worship was false worship. They worshipped all kinds of, including Malik. They worshipped gods that were no gods. Part of their worship system was temple prostitution. And that was just part of their culture. And, and the sexual perversion in Canaan, we think it's bad here. We ought to look back a little while. Sometimes we say it couldn't get any worse. Oh, yeah, it, it's worse. It gets worse. There's history that's a whole lot worse. And it, the history is the land of Canaan. It was awful. Um, I, I'm not even going to give some of the details that we read, but we know a lot what happened there. It, it's, I don't want to talk about it, but it was pervert, just perverted terribly. And the next thing is to remember that God's work in Canaan was not genocide. He wasn't trying to wipe out a race of people. It was judgment. And there's a difference. God was judging the illicit behavior, the illicit morals, and the illicit worship system of a people. He was judging them. And while the people were involved, he was judging the system. He was judging anything that is against him. Then lastly, just another observation is that the people had a chance. If they were to flee the land... Um, and remember, this is the land that God gave Abraham. Uh, they, they have landed at Shechem, just another little side trip here. Shechem is between Mount uh, Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and they've landed at Shechem now. And if you go back earlier, in, like in Genesis 12, that's exactly where Abraham was when God gave Abraham the covenant and said, chapter 12, I'm going to give you this land. So they're right back in the land that God had given to Abraham some 400 years before. It's their land. And, and the people that were there had a chance to flee, and, and the Israelites didn't chase them out of the land if they fleed. And for those that stayed, for instance, Rahab and her family, they were spared. Uh, so there was grace available to people, to those who would believe and trust the living God. So grace was there, yes, but it was. It was bloody, and it's hard. It's hard to read. Let me read starting at, at just verse 1, and uh, I'll just say this as I read it. Defeat, a defeat, doesn't have to be the end. A defeat sometimes is just the beginning of what God's going to do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, all the fighting men, not just a few, 
Arise, go up to Ai, and see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. So what, what made the difference between them being run out in chapter 7 and them being promised victory in chapter 8? What made the difference? Re- repentance made the difference. And I, I have to stop on that and think about that for a moment. There, there are times in our lives today where we can be going through really, really tough stuff, hard things, um, defeats of all kind. And maybe, just maybe, it's because we need to go back and say, Lord, I, I was wrong, and, and change our paths, repent. The word repent simply means to turn away, turn around, do 180 and turn away from whatever it is that's the barrier between us and him and turn back to him. And, and then the blessing can come. That's what happened here. Is the difference between defeat and victory was repentance. And in a word, that was it. That was the difference. Is the people repented. They rid the sin out. It's gone. And now God can give them victory again. That, there's a word there for us, folks is that sometimes when there's no victory, it's because there's something in in our life that's a barrier between us and him. Repentance made the difference. Sin was judged. And then the the plan is contrived. If you pick up at verse 2, I'm just going to read a few verses here. Just track with me from Joshua 8.2. And you shall do to Ai and its king what you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So he's going to give them a military plan here. The captain of the Lord's army, the Lord himself, is going to give them a plan. And it's a great plan. It's a plan that military uh, forces have used over the years. It's It's ambush. The wireless, they. Uh, let's try this. Uh, I don't need a mic. You can hear. Uh, where was I? I was talking about ambush. Uh, they, they, the military tactic is sound. You know, it's one that has been used all the time. It's a way to uh, fool the enemy, and God said, this is what you do. So he lays out a plan. But the, the thing that, that grabbed my attention is twofold. One is that it's a different method, which I've already talked about, not the way that he went into Jericho. But the, the second thing there, it says, uh, you're going to do to Jericho lay an ambush, and take the plunder for yourselves. Do you remember what he said about the, all the riches of Jericho? What was the problem with Achan? Achan took the riches for himself, right? And here, he says, take everything they've got. It's for you. It's to sustain you and meet your needs. It's for you. Now, just chew on that a second. What would have happened if Achan would have waited and hadn't gotten greedy, right? What would have happened? Would would God have given him what his heart desired just a little bit later had he waited on God? Well, here he's given it to him. 
Do you think maybe that's a good word for us too? Sometimes we jump ahead of God and we want it right now, right this minute. That's the American way, right? You've got to have it now. I want it today. Can't wait till tomorrow. And sometimes what we don't realize is that just around the horizon, just over the next bend, God has got a blessing that surpasses anything we could imagine. And we need to wait on him for that blessing and go by his rules. Do it the way he says. So he goes on, uh, reading from uh, the third verse and following. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and he chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we'll flee from them. And they will come out after us until they have, we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. So there's the plan. They're going to lay an ambush. They're going to send a force out. And they're going to be ready to take the city. The others are going to come up, pretend they're coming in and run away. And when the people of Ai chase them, then they're, they're going to turn and the people of Ai are going to be destroyed and the city is going to be destroyed. That sounds like a sound plan. Uh, let's, let's think about that for a moment. If you were the king of Ai and what had just happened had happened, and that is that Israel had come up to the gates and they'd tried to get in the city, and you'd chased them away and killed some of their soldiers. How would you feel this time? Feel pretty confident? We've got this, right? These guys, they haven't learned their lesson. They're fools. We've got this. And he would feel pretty confident that they could go out after them and, and win the battle and once again kill their people and maybe take their goods. He'd feel pretty confident. But his confidence was in... A, a false source that was in himself and his soldiers. Israel starts with the confidence of the Lord saying, don't fear, I'm with you. I've given you the city. Once again, I just see a lesson in that. I see a lesson in it. And there are a lot of people in this world who are totally confident. Richard Dawkins was one of the most confident men you'd ever listen to. You ever listen to Richard Dawkins at all? Bright, bright, articulate man. And there are a lot of people like him. I'll single him out. A lot of people like him. And, and they have all the answers. They just have all the answers. And they are so confident in their answers that they have no trouble saying we're fools for trusting the Lord. And I suspect maybe the king of Ai would have done the same thing. These people are crazy. They just did it. It failed. Now they're going to do it again? And, and I suspect that he might have said the same thing. But what he didn't know is Israel had God on their side. And with God on their side, <clears throat> they were going to win. And so bring that forward to the world we live in. A lot of people, educators, intelligentsia, entertainers, people who are in the public eye, who speak with such confidence against God, they have the answer. I mean, do you hear it? Does anybody but me hear this? Do you hear it in the news? 
and 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 you hear Hollywood has the greatest voice because they're the most visible, but but educators also, and and they just have all the answers, and this God thing, like Dawkins said, the fiction that I read, that fictional character God. Do you hear what he said? He's not real. <laughs> He's a fictional character. And I am convinced that Dawkins went to his grave probably believing that he was right. Did you know that believing you're right doesn't make you right? Did you know that? And you can really believe you're right. You can believe that south as hard as you want to believe it, and it's not. You know, And people can believe whatever they like, but it doesn't make it true. I think these people in, in AI were thoroughly convinced they were going to win this battle or they wouldn't have done what they did. Uh, they went out after him, but they were wrong. So what changed? Repentance changed, and then the Lord was going to give them the city using their own means. Now, there's another section of this I want to go to. Look at later in the chapter. We can see it in verses 28 and 29. Let me just read those two verses. Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree till evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, they took the body down from the tree, <clears throat> threw it at the entrance of the gate, and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands there till this day. So they, they built this great heap of stones. I wonder if they put a... Uh, a little monument or an inscription there on the gravestone. I wonder if they did. Uh, we don't know that. You ever walk through a graveyard and reflect? It's good for us sometimes. Uh, walk through a graveyard. I, I've done this. We did this not too long ago down south. We walked through an old, old graveyard. And I, I look at the dates, born 1720 or something, and and I, I look at w when they died, sometimes very young, sometimes they lived a long life. But then I just stand there and I kind of wonder. Do you, ever, do you ever do that? Just kind of wonder, what was their life like? What, what would that setting have been like? Um, was their life good? And then sometimes you'll see an inscription, like, for instance, absent from the body, absent from the body, present with the Lord, or something of that sort. You'll see that on stones. And you say, well... You know, thank you, Lord, that there's there's that confidence there. Well, I don't know if they put a, a marker over the king of Ai's grave, but as people walked by and they looked over, what would have come to their mind? What would have come through their mind? Would they have thought that was a mighty king, and he thought he had it together? Look where he is. Look where he is. Would it have reminded them of the failure of a system and the failure of an ungodly, anti-God approach to life? Would it have reminded them? Remember back in chapter 4 where I think Nate spoke on the 12 stones and then they came up and they built a monument on the, uh, on the shore of the 12 stones. And it says that in the generations to follow, as they come by, they'll look out and see those stones and they'll remember you know, they'll remember the parting of the water. They'll remember that God delivered his people. And those stones were a great memory. Then again in uh, chapter 7, uh, over Achan's grave, 
Achan being a, a child of Israel. Over his grave, there's a pile of stones. And what would that pile of stones remind him of? It would remind him of the futility of having sin in the camp and the reward of having sin in the camp. It would remind them that there's judgment over God's people. There, there's no judgment over God's people today, is there? God would never judge his people today, would he? God's a God of grace, right? You ever read 1 Corinthians 11? The people were coming to the communion table, and some of them had sin in their life. These were believers. And it says that because they wouldn't judge their sin, you can check me on this, it's down around verse 30, because they wouldn't judge their own sin, God judged their sin. And he took their lives. He said, they sleep among you. They're dead now. Do, do you think that possibly God would judge a believer today because they're rebellious, just like he did? When they looked at that pile of stones and they said, whoa, that was Achan and his family. And he was one of us. And look what happened. And so do you think there's a message again there for us today? Is that let's not presume on God's grace. That's a dangerous place to be, is presuming on grace. Well, with all of that, the last section here is it's time for renewal. It's a new day. And this is a really intriguing section. I'm going to read 30 through 35 of chapter 8 and just kind of track with me, listen to it, and let's come back and think about it for a moment. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. He built an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And I'll pause long enough just to say this wasn't to be a monument to some man's craftsmanship. That's not what this was about. It wasn't even about their creativity. This was built for the Lord according to his instruction. It was untouched. These stones were uncut by any human, any artisan. And so they, they built this altar. And then the first thing they did, they offered uh, on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings, burnt offerings. You know what burnt offerings were? Burnt offerings were offered for sin. A burnt offerings were a, an acknowledgement, a humble acknowledgement before God that we need an offering for sin. People come to Jesus Christ today with humility and say, Lord, I know I've done wrong. I know I've sinned. And I know that Jesus Christ is the offering for my sin. He became sin for all of us, for all mankind, for all time. He became sin. So, the burnt offering was an altar of sacrifice, and they offered it for sin. But then he goes on and talks about the peace offering. And the peace offering was a, a free will offering of thanksgiving. Okay, so the, the children of Israel have won over Ai. The battle's been fought. Now they've moved on just a short distance away, and they've stopped. And so what do they do? They build an altar to the Lord. That's worship. They wanted to worship him. And the first thing they do is acknowledge sin to him. And they say, Lord, we need your help. We need forgiveness for sin. The second thing they do is offer praise and thanksgiving. And is there another word for us this morning? 
that, that when we come to him, especially after a victory, sometimes we can begin to think we're pretty special, that we come to him and we say, Lord, I desperately need a sacrifice for my sin because it's real. I know that I'm sinful, and I know that Jesus is my sacrifice for sin. So I just come to him and say, Lord, my only hope, my only plea is Jesus, his blood shed for me. That's all I have. And and we come to him. And then we recognize his goodness. Um, God's good, folks. He's good. And he wants our praise. It comes up before him as a sweet-smelling savor. And as the smoke wafts up from the offering, it comes up before his nostrils. Great picture. And and so we offer the the peace offering, which simply says, Lord, thank you that I'm at peace with you. Ah, uh, isn't that a good place to be? Matt, is that a good place to be this morning? At peace with God, is it? I just want to add that he judged our sin. Yes, right. That's the way we're judged. That's right. Yeah, our... Our sin's taken. It's gone. And so, knowing that, we offer the sacrifice of praise to him. That's, that's the peace offering. Worship then was accompanied. Notice if you read on. Um, they offered to burn offerings and peace offerings in 31. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner, notice that, as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest and carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. We could talk about those mountains sometime. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And notice verse 34. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, According to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So you see the prominence of the word of God here is that they've worshipped and they come back to the word. Sometimes the word directs our worship. It helps us to know how to worship. It's hard for us to know how to worship without the Word. It directs us to worship. We understand better what Christ did for us through the Word, so we worship Him more fully. Now, worship comes from the root of worth. We see the worth of God through His Word, and uh, then we worship Him. We offer Him our adoration, our love, our praise. But notice there's a little clause in here. He says it's for the leaders, for the women, for the men, and for the children. We've got a few teens here this morning. I can hardly see them, but they're here. And can you imagine that, that he's saying that the Word of God is even for the teens? Huh? Grandsons, where are you? You listening? That the Word of God is even for the teens? Even for the kids? For the old? Old folks like me? That the word of God's for everybody? Yeah, that's what he said. That they gathered and they read it before all the people. And, you know, everyone needs the word of God. We never become exempt from our need for the word of God. We need to hear from him through his word. Teens, kids, parents, grandparents, 
great-grandparents, incidentally. Have we heard anything about a great-grandchild? Okay. Our granddaughter, who's in Belgium, is, uh, yesterday we heard she thought she was in labor, and so she's at a, as far as I know, a hospital in Belgium, and, and we're waiting to hear. She's still at home. Okay. All right. She's at home. May, may have been a false alarm, but uh, a great-grandchild. Can you imagine? I look so young to have a great-grandchild, right? <laughs> um, but we're soon going to have, oh, yes, you've got, yeah, great-grandchildren. Uh, that's great. We're looking forward. They live in Belgium, though. That's a puzzle. I don't know how to fix all that. But you know what that great-grandchild needs? That great-grandchild, more than anything else, needs to worship the living God. And that great-grandchild needs to offer praise to the Word of God. And that great-grandchild needs to be saturated by the Word of God. That's what that great-grandchild needs. And that's what all of us need. And so God gave them AI, gave them all the spoils, all the good stuff. And when it was all done and the monuments are all built, all those piles of stone, they came back and they worshiped God. They worshiped him, acknowledged his goodness in every way, and then they spent time in his word. Again, I say, there's a word here for us. That's who we are. We are God's people. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this story, the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, what would have happened to Israel had they not judged sin, had they not turned back to you, we wouldn't be looking at that little tiny sliver of land today and and wondering how we could have such a prominent place in history because it, it wouldn't be. But Lord, they did turn back to you. They did acknowledge you. They acknowledged their own sin. And they came to you with confession, with repentance. And Lord, we see your hand of intervention we give you thanks. And Lord, this morning, as a people, we want to say to you that our right standing with you, we know fully, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we can have right standing with you because Christ died for our sins, for my sin. And Lord, we confess that to you together. And then, Lord, like Israel, we want to offer up our peace offerings, our words of praise, our words of thanksgiving for your goodness, for your constant care, for your presence. Lord, thank you that you are who you are. And then, Lord, as we read through your word, we, we see our frailty. There's so much that we don't know and so much we, haven't, we don't look at. But, Lord, this is your word, and, and we treasure it, too. And we give you thanks for it. And Lord, help it to be uh, the most visible thing in our life as we live out your word. Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for these people. If there might be a work that needs done in a heart this morning. Someone who's got a barrier between you and them. Lord, would you bring it down today through breaking a heart through repentance, Lord, so that you can give them the blessing just like you gave the folks at AI. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.